I would, I would encourage you to open to Revelation chapter 6, especially verse 17. We're going to begin with, and as you're turning there, uh, we're looking at the doctrine of the second coming, but in the Old Testament, that doctrine is known by the 19 times repeated term of day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord has two elements we're going to look at. One is the actual event, uh, all of the cosmic quakes, and that'll be next time, but this time we're looking at the Lord part. And, and what it is God is doing, and the centrality, as you see on the screens there, the day of the Lord and the centrality of Christ to everything. But as you're looking at that 17th verse, I would encourage you to, if you think of it, starting this evening, to pray for me. As soon as this service is over, I'm buzzing straight to Detroit, flying to Albany, zipping up to Scroon Lake, and I'm starting a week-long Bible conference. They asked me, they said, would you come and, and uh, preach what you preach at Calvary? I said, oh, I'd love to preach what I preach at Calvary because after I preach to you, I correct all the mistakes, and then I'm ready to, to go out. In fact, uh, even between first and second service, uh, my children who edit a lot of the uh, material that goes out online and on radio and everything, they say, the second service is so much better. You have so uh, many fewer mistakes in the second service. But what, what you can pray about is, uh, before me at Word of Life, Mark Bailey, Dr. Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary speaks, and after me uh, is Joel Rosenberg, and you know, the prophetic writer and novelist and news person, and I'm squished in between, and you know, Dr. Bailey, that's where I got my degree from, so I'm careful wondering what he's going to think. And then Joel Rosenberg, I want to go to his session. And so it's going to be really interesting to, uh, we can't hear each other because we're all speaking at the same time all around. And for those of you that know anything about Word of Life, uh, it's an incredible Bible conference. There'll probably be 500 teenagers there, um, probably three or four hundred little, uh, little people, and then all the rest adults on all the different campgrounds and ranches and islands and inns and everything else, and it's just a wonderful time. But this morning, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is God's reintroduction to humanity of who he really is. Uh, he is the creator. That's how we all got here. He is God the Son, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who came in human flesh to die but most of the world don't acknowledge Christ as the creator. Most of the world do not know Christ as the redeemer. But at the day of the Lord, God gets everybody's attention. And he introduces himself to this planet and to its people. And when he does, the whole world begins quaking and shaking and and actually disintegrating, it says it melts beneath him as he comes. So that's what we're looking at this morning. In all of human history, all of God's word, and the entire universe find as the central figure to everything Jesus Christ. Jesus is central to the word of God. Remember he told the apostles after his resurrection, search the scriptures, they speak of me. See, everything is about Christ. He is central to everything. And all of human history is all pointing toward this event when God finally stops the rebellion. So, 
now that you've seen where we're starting, turn back a little bit to the book of Romans because I, I want you to see how the Bible permeates with this truth. And I want you to see what's happening at the day of the Lord. And it's in Romans eleven thirty six. Now, this is a great one to have underlined if you don't. It's one of the doxologies Paul gives. And sometimes Paul's writing along and all of a sudden he pauses and just breaks forth into an offering of worship and praise. And that's what this is. And basically... What it says in Romans eleven thirty six is, for of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. What it's saying is Jesus is central. See, the centrality of Christ. Now, the day of the Lord is the declaration of that to all the universe that is waiting in bondage and to all humans, but to us. It's just a reminder of the centrality of Christ, that of him, through him, to Jesus Christ is everything, and all of life is to point toward him. So this morning, what we're looking at is the reality of Jesus Christ being central to everything in life. And only this morning as we allow Christ to be at the center of everything does it make sense. I mean, why does God go through all of these seals and all these trumpets and all of these bowls and all of these horrific outpourings of demons? What, what is all this stuff in the book of Revelation for? It's to show the centrality. As we saw last week, I, I told you that the, the Holy Spirit and the church presently are like control rods in a reactor, and there is a lessening of evil. Now, it doesn't seem like it, but uh, there is a lessening of evil in this world because of the restraint of the Spirit of God and because of the presence of saints, us who know Christ. But when God removes that, that's the first element of him revealing. He says, if I don't restrain you, you destroy yourselves. Now, that's true. The worst thing you can let anybody do is anything they want to do. If you let someone do anything they want to do, sin leads them into ever-deepening pathways that are very destructive. We are self-destructive at our very essence as sinners. And so God says, I want you to see how central Christ is to everything. Only with Christ does everything make sense. You take away the light of the world, the world gets dark. You take away the, the truth, the whole world is deceived. You take away the bread of life, the whole world starves in horrific starvation. Now, Paul summarizes it. Just, just look before you at Romans eleven thirty six. For of him... That's all of life, all that exists, whether time or space or energy or any form of matter. Anything in the universe that exists is of him. It's, it's because of him he brought this universe into existence. And secondly, through him. The only way out of sin's penalties is through him. He's the only door. It's like we're all in this trapped in this building and we're all going to burn forever because of our sins and there's one door and it's Jesus Christ. He says, through me. Only through me do you have forgiveness. Only through me do you have redemption. Only through me do you have life. You have to come my way. And what the sad message of the Bible is that the vast majority of all who ever have lived on this planet have looked at the doorway that is Christ. And they said, no, we're going to find our own door. We don't like your door. We're going, we're going to find our own way out of this mess. And they never do. Because it's only through him and God's favor and God's presence and God's life. And finally, to him. Everything is headed for an appointment. To him has been given all authority in the universe. Remember at the, at the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ 
is central to everything. Everything is headed to him. In fact, everybody that's ever lived has an appointment with Christ. He's sitting on the great white throne. They're all going to be resurrected. They're all going to come and look up at him and say that you are just to consign me to eternal destruction because you are holy and I am a sinner. Now, people don't go to hell because they never heard of Jesus. People will go to hell because they die with sins on them. You understand, that's the essence of our problem. We are covered with sin, and our sin attracts the wrath of God. And Jesus is the only one that can remove sin. It's like a cancer clinic. It's like a, a place where you can go and have your tumor removed. And there's only one place to go. And you're told and you're pointed toward it and say, you have cancer, you've got to go there. And they go, no, I don't. I'm going to try to take care of it myself. I don't want to have surgery. I don't want to give up my tumor. I like it. It helps me or whatever. That's what sin is like to people. They want and hold. And Jesus said, no, it's only through me. Well, Jesus Christ, of him, through him, and to him, is the only way to find meaning in life. The only way that life makes sense is to understand that of him everything exists, through him is what the only hope of redemption is, and to him is where we're headed, and we're going to have to give an answer to him. And so, what that means is Jesus Christ is also central to everything that exists. Now, I, I want you to think about the, the three key doctrines of Jesus Christ. Number one, the doctrine of creation. Now, remember when Paul gave the gospel to pagans, he first of all started with that we were created. Uh, we, chaos of evolution does not lead toward complexity. Rather, creation the cosmos is very orderly. Remember we saw last week with all those rules, and that's the signature of the creator. So you start with that first doctrine. Jesus is the one who starts everything. He framed the universe as we saw last week, and he consistently, the Bible says, holds it together. And scientists are always trying to discover uh, what binds together those subatomic particles and what holds them, and they have different theories, and they have ideas, and they even have a particle called a gluon, like glue, you know, and it, it, it helps. But actually what the Bible says is it's Christ. He holds it together. Second doctrine is the doctrine of redemption. Jesus is the Redeemer. He brought everything into existence, and he is the one that came down to be the sin bearer by one sacrifice. And that sacrifice goes back toward all that look to him, and it goes forward from the cross to all who would believe on him. And that sacrifice, one sacrifice, was forever. He is the Redeemer. And finally, Jesus Christ is the Lord. And just as he came for sinful humans to die, so he's going to return in blazing, blinding, fiery fury. Why? Because he's omniscient, omnipresent, every sin that's ever been sinned, he is aware of it. He is so holy, so righteous, so just, he can leave no, even one sin unpunished. And he's coming back in blazing fire looking for people who refused his offer to remove their sins and who cling to the death to their sins. In fact, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament has a beautiful verse. He said that you go through life with an avalanche of sin following you. He's talking to the Israelites. He says it's just like sin is like an avalanche and your sins are building up and they're going to bury you and they're going to push you forever into the wrath of God and forever away from 
the presence of God. And that's the doctrine of the second coming. Jesus is the Lord. He is the judge. He is the one that's coming. He is the one that's going to, in fiery vengeance, pour out his wrath on sinners. So basically, the first two events are history. I mean, creation, that's a historic event. Creation bears Christ's signature. The laws of the universe show not the chaos of chance and evolution, but a cosmos of creation that has order and, and immutable laws. That fills our science books. His redemption fills the history books of humanity. Even our calendars around most of the world find his birth as the, the dividing point in history. It, it's B.C. before his birth, before Christ, and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord since. And, and history books are filled with the reality of what millions of people that profess his name and bear his image believe. But the last event's coming. There's creation, that's historic. There is redemption, that's historic. But the second coming of Christ is yet ahead. And that doctrine, what I want you to see is why he's doing it. Why does he go through all the trouble of waiting, 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 and then all of a sudden, at a moment only known to him, coming back in fiery fury? What is the purpose? The purpose is to reveal who he is. And to, to understand that, turn now with me to the book of Hebrews. We have one more passage. Turn to the right. You're in Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Just go to Revelation and go back. It's about seven from the end. But find that because I want to show you who it is that's coming. I mean, we say Jesus is coming back. Yeah, who is he from God's perspective? In fact, what I'd like to show you from Hebrews chapter 11 is what I would call Christ resume. Have you ever, you know, interviewed someone or wanted to hire someone or maybe you wanted to get a job and you had to write a resume? And a resume, it's not supposed to be too long or it's boring. It can't be too short or it looks like you're inept and unqualified. And it has to be just the right length. You know what? Christ has a resume. It's one sentence in the Greek language. And it fills Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. All three of those verses, as you find it in your Bible, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to read it and you can follow along in a minute, but all of Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3 is one continuous, unbroken, seven-clawed sentence in the Greek language. And what it is, is it's Jesus Christ's resume. It's who he is, who God has revealed him to be, and it explains to us why he's coming. And so now that you found it, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, look with me who Jesus Christ really is and see what he has done because that defines the events of the day of the Lord. Okay, you got it? Let's all stand together. Remain standing while I read, then I'll pray, and then we're going to go through this resume and see what's happening at the day of the Lord. God, verse 1 of Hebrews 1, who at various times and in various ways spoke, in time past to the fathers by the prophets, verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. Those are the seven clauses. And that's Christ's resume. Let's bow before him in prayer. Lord, I pray as we get the privilege of looking at an inspired portrait of who you are and of who exactly it is that's coming in the day of the Lord. I pray that those of us that know you would be stirred in our hearts to wonder, to worship, to adore you as you've revealed yourself to us in your word today. And I pray for anyone who is here who has never yet met you, O Christ. I pray that you would knock on their heart's door, that your spirit would convict them of their need of your salvation and that you would draw them to yourself this morning. What a joy it would be for another one to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. And we ask for your blessing and insight upon our hearts as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, look at the Lord who is coming. And look at these seven phrases. Just start in verse 2. I'm going to show them to you. The first one is in verse 2, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. That means he's the one who's going to inherit everything. Secondly, it says, through whom he made the worlds. That means he, Christ, is the creator of everything. Thirdly, he is the brightness of his glory. Jesus Christ is the radiator of the glory of God. Now, most people don't have radiator. Well, you might have one in your car, but most don't have many more in their houses. But I remember when we started out uh, 30 years ago in ministry, uh, or 25, I guess, when we were in New England, they had radiators still. It was a 165-year-old house, and it had radiators. And the radiator didn't, didn't make the heat. The furnace did, but it radiated it as the hot water filled it, and they, they sizzled and sparked and hissed. Well, Christ is the radiator, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the brightness of God's glory. God is invisible. He's a spirit, but Jesus is the one who, like the beams of light coming from the sun, he radiates the glory of God. Fourthly, he is the character, the express image of God's person. That, that word image in your Bible, the Greek word for that is the Greek word character. And Jesus is the express character of God. And fifthly, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the sustainer of everything. Jesus is not limited or localized. He inherits everything, creates everything, radiates God, reveals God, and sustains everything in the universe. Everything holds together. What happens if Jesus lets go? Have you ever been, you know, tying something and, and you know, like uh, you've wrapped the ribbon all around and you ask someone to put their finger right there till you can tie the knot, and when they let up a little bit, it goes, Shh. did you know Jesus holds the universe together? Second Peter 3, we, we studied a few months ago, is when Jesus lets go. And it says the entire universe melts. It disintegrates at an atomic level. It just, it just is one huge meltdown of the universe because he's holding it together. And when he lets go, it's kind of like a grenade. It blows up. He's also, sixthly, the one, it says, when he had by himself purged our sins. What is that? He is the one who purifies sin. He is the only one that can remove sin. He's the only one that can pay for it. He's the only one that can be a sacrifice. He is the one who purifies us of our sins. And finally, look how the verse ends, verse 3. When he had by himself purged our sins, it says, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. What is the right hand? It's the place of authority. It says in the scriptures that God the Father has committed all judgment to his Son. He has given him all authority, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. That's what the right hand means. It means under his authority, which means he's the ruler of everything. That's Jesus Christ. So, Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. That's why Hebrews 1 explains who he is. That's why the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus Christ. It's explaining to us who it is that comes. Jesus is the Lord of all. And those seven phrases you see before you in verse 2 and 3, clearly as can be said, say that Jesus is the center of everything. He is, number one, the one that started everything as creator. Number two, he entered the physical world as the creator-redeemer. And Jesus will consummate everything as the Lord. So, what the day of the Lord reminds us is that all of history is headed somewhere. Did you know that evolution says it's just we don't know what's going to happen. It's just kind of happening, and it's kind of like we're an accident. That's what evolutionists would say. All of us here today are an accident. There was no design in this. There was no intentionality. But the Bible says that's not true. History has a beginning. God began it. It has a central point, Jesus Christ, and it has a culmination, an ending. And all of history is headed toward the day of the Lord. And, and history, unlike the chaotic randomness of evolution of a cosmic accident that spontaneously started, everything according to evolution is headed nowhere. But according to God, one ultimate event is left in God's eternal plan. And that event is the day when the Lord, the Creator, who is so beautifully revealed as the Lord, the Creator, Redeemer, steps back into earth as the Lord, the judge. Now, that event is so big that about 20% of the scriptures are about the day of the Lord. Do you realize that almost every fifth page is about this event? It's, it's the major event of the Bible, the day of the Lord, the second coming, his plans for the, the consummation of everything. So, what we need to see is that the inheritor of everything is coming. Now, Jesus told many stories about this. He talked about the heir who the king had given the vineyard to, and it was leased out, but then the one that inherited and owned it came. See, that's the first thing. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, the inheritors, look at the phrase, has appointed him heir of all things. Colossians 1.16 declares Jesus became the heir of everything because all were created by him and for him. So how does Jesus become the inheritor of everything? Because he made it. And God the Father told him he could make it, and when he got done making it, he says, now it's yours. He is the heir of all things. He possesses everything. As Redeemer, he purchased. He purchased all who come through the sacrifice of his blood. So this morning, if you're a born-again Christian, you and I are and a purchase of Christ. Now, what it says, it's beautiful what it says in Ephesians 1.18. It says, the redeemed are his glorious inheritance. Do you know what that means? Jesus has inherited everything. He's inherited all the galaxies and all the stars and all the space in between them. He's inherited the earth, our solar system, and everything on this planet, everything else. And so he's got all that. That's his inheritance. 
but he calls us who have been purchased with his blood his glorious inheritance. Do you realize that means we're better than everything else in the universe? We are more priceless and valuable as his inheritance than anything else in the universe. In fact, one author said, the glorious inheritance we are in Christ is a, is a cause for delirious joy, is how that writer of yesteryear put it. Delirious joy. To think, every time we look up at the sky, that all the rest of the universe, we are worth more as saints. The one who inherited everything thinks we're his real treasure. It's not the stars or the galaxies or the numberless angels. It's just purchased and washed sinners that are glorious to God. The truth pondered is enough to overwhelm us because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that all things are ours because we're in Christ. And that is the first element of the resume. Jesus Christ is the inheritor, the heir apparent, the owner of all things. But second, it, it, it is amazing if you think about it. He is also the creator of all things. And I thought to understand creation, why don't we pick the greatest genius alive today? Now, we all know who he is. He, he's 71 years old. He lives or teaches at Cambridge, at least doesn't actually live at the university. He rides the wheelchair. He's severely handicapped, and his name is Stephen Hawking. Now, he is renowned to be the greatest human mind conscious right now on the planet. And he wrote, for us who are not theoretical physicists, uh, for those of us who don't think with a supercomputer mind like he does, he has written what sums up all of human comprehension of the cosmos. So he wrote a book. It's called A Brief History of Time. And, and he took his supercomputer mind, analyzed the whole universe, and wrote it in lay terms for us. So I thought I'd read a paragraph of what he wrote. And, and Christ's resume says he inherited the whole universe, and then the second line of his resume says he also made it. So let's hear what Hawking says about what Jesus made. He said, our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy. It looks like all the other galaxies. It looks like a swirl of pastry, and it's over 100,000 light years across. In travel terms, that's 600 trillion miles wide. We know our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that have been seen using modern telescopes. So the first point of Hawking, we're, we're this, this spiral pastry galaxy, and we're one of a hundred thousand million swirling pastry galaxies. You know, I like, he must like to eat. Um, then he says, we know our galaxy is only one of those hundred thousand million, but each of them contains a hundred thousand million stars. So there are 100,000 million clusters swirling like pastry, and inside of each of the 100,000 million are 100,000 million stars, like our sun. Okay, I think we all understand that. Then he goes on. Most astronomers calculate the average distance between the three, uh, or between these 100,000 million galaxies, which are each 600 trillion miles across, is 3 million light years. So between each of these 100,000 million objects, there are 3 trillion miles of distance between all of them. So, I mean, not 3 trillion, 3 million light years. See, now we're getting off the page. Let me get to his next sentence. 
Add to this incomprehensible number the Doppler effect that Edwin Hubble, remember the Edwin Hubble, we named the telescope, the, the camera in space, the Hubble telescope? This is why Hubble's famous. He found that all red spectrum type galaxies are moving away from the Earth. And by the way, almost every galaxy of the 100,000 million of them are red spectrum. So what he's saying is almost every one of those 100,000 million galaxies are moving away from us, and not slowly, 200 million miles an hour. That means during this one message, they're 200 million miles further away from us. And if I don't stop talking, your mind will be out there too, so I'm going to get back. And so basically, astronomers have estimated the furthest galaxy is 8 billion light years away, and it's racing away at 200 million miles an hour, and all this scientific observation, Mr. Hawking, and that's only one paragraph of his book. Do you know what that tells us? We can't even comprehend what's out there. And on the resume, the person that's coming to Earth owns all of that and made all of that. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get on the resume. Third thing is, Jesus, who created every speck of matter and the energy in every one of those thousands of millions of immeasurably macro-sized galaxies out there, also created everything at the other side. That's the macro side. At the micro side, the, the quarks and the leptons and neutrinos and the electrons, at the subatomic level, he also made them. They're immeasurably small. In fact, they can't even measure the mass of those little particles. And just like they're immeasurably large on the macro scale, and Jesus made all those things, but he didn't just make them. It says in John 1, 3, he made them in a word in an instant from nothing. And it says this, first, or John 1, 3, all things were made through him, without him nothing was made that was made. And then Paul goes on to say, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So this inheritor of all things that created all things did all of that and just did it in a moment, in the instant that started creation. But it goes on, it says he's the brightness of his glory. Thirdly, he's the radiator of God, and that's who's coming. The one who, who radiates God. In fact, when John saw him on the Isle of Patmos, do you remember when we were in Revelation 1 a long time ago, John was there serving time in a Roman colony, and all of a sudden he heard a voice like a trumpet, and if you heard someone blowing a trumpet behind you, like Greg Wonderlich, you know, hitting that trumpet when he really hits the high note, you'd turn around too. And when you turned around, he saw Jesus Christ. And when he saw him, what did Jesus look like? Do you remember? His face was like the blazing light of the sun. What is that? That's right here. The radiator of God, the one who radiates the glory of God. The moon reflects light, but the sun radiates light. Jesus Christ is God. And as God the Son, he radiates the glory of an infinite almighty God. He blazes with the brightness of the sun. I mean, just him. On the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when Peter and James and John were up there, for just a moment, what Jesus did is, he went like this and went, and he opened up and let his glory that's inside of him all the time, he just let it come out a little bit, and then he went like that. It overwhelmed them, and it said that he was just shining like brightness. That's who he is. 
What happens when he comes back? Well, Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians 1, when Jesus is revealed from heaven, this is the day of the Lord, with his mighty angels, he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. Do you understand why at the tribulation all the people crawl under rocks and look for holes and get in caves and they're crowding out all the spiders down there? Why? Because the sun blazing is coming toward them and they know they're sinners. See, you can only get rid of your sin by right now calling on the name of the Lord. It says in Hebrews, while you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Let him take your sin. Well, it doesn't end there. He's also the character of God. He's the express image of his person. If you look at the next phrase in Hebrews 1.3, the word image means character. Uh, it's actually the Greek word. It means a representation of reality. Jesus gives us the reality of who God is. In fact, do you want to know how God talks? Listen to Jesus. He's God talking. You want to know what Jesus thinks of, of women? Read the book of Luke. He, he, he is a real fan. He elevated women above anything of the culture of the day. Do you want to know what Jesus thinks of children? He says, don't keep them away. Let them come to me. Do you know what Jesus thinks of sinners? He says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, no matter what you have, come to me. He touched lepers. Nobody else in the world would touch them. He did. You want to know what God's like? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the character of God, and that's who is coming. He is also the sustainer of everything. It says he upholds all things. If you look at the next line, all things by the word of his power. Jesus holds everything together, and as I told you in 2 Peter 3, when he lets go, it blows up like a grenade. Right now, the only thing holding the universe together are the, the power of Christ to sustain now, now, that's a lot of sustaining power. And so you know what that makes me think of when I'm worried about something right here on earth and wondering if I'm going to make it? I just call out because I don't have to wait for him to come. I already know him, and he lives within me, and he can sustain me in my life. He's also the purifier of sins. The greatest danger and the most toxic influence and the most horrible substance in the universe is sin. You know, I was talking to someone this morning, and they said, you live in Van Buren County, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. They said, well, Van Buren County is known for two things, blueberries and meth. I said, well, I have one and not the other. Uh, you know, but, did you, you know, we think of, you know, drugs and other things as being toxic. Do you know what the most toxic thing in the universe is? Sin. Sin is horrifically, it's so powerfully bad that it instantly radiated out and it holds the whole universe in bondage. Plus, it's infected every single human that's ever lived but one. And that was when God became man. Sin is horrible. Nothing is worse than sin. Nothing is as fearful as having and holding on to the one thing that merits eternal wrath-filled destruction. By the way, you can't hide sin from God. You know, the book of Ezekiel is, is a long book. 48 chapters. One part of it is fascinating to me. The Lord is talking to his prophet Ezekiel, and, and he says, he takes him to the temple, and he says, do you want to see what those priests are thinking about? And Ezekiel said, what, what? He said, I'll show you what's in their minds. You want to see what's in their minds? And Ezekiel, God told him to, to go to a building and dig through the, the adobe kind of mud wall and stick his head inside. And so Ezekiel got down and dug through this 
this mud wall and stuck his head inside. And when he looked inside, he saw all this horrible monsters and filth and evil. And he, he stuck, pulled his head back out. And he says, what are you doing, God? He said, that's what's inside the minds of those people. You see, sin can't be hidden from God. It's horrible, but it's visible to him. He sees everything we do. He knows everything we think. He inhabits our thoughts, the Bible says. He knows what's going on inside of us. And he's the only one that can get rid of it. In fact, one sacrifice on the cross provided the only antidote, the only hope, the only payment that could ever be made. And you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to represent God as dispensers of the reconciliation. We can offer to people the way that they can connect with the one that can remove the tumor that is so malignant it deserves eternal wrath. And we can share that gospel and they can have what we have. Jesus Christ, in six hours on one Friday afternoon in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, paid for my sins. You know what that means? That means when I die, whether this afternoon driving to the airport or, you know, in 10 years or whenever, I will die with none of my sins on myself. Even if I die, you know, real quickly and I don't have time for a priest or to do anything good or to go to confessions, I will die with no sins on me. Why? Because they're all on Christ. Past, today's, and everyone into the future. How do you do that? Six hours on the cross 2,000 years ago. He paid for every sin, for all who would ever believe on him. And he offers it to everyone, but only so few believe on him. Well, finally, he is the ruler of everything. Look, look what it says. If you look down at the very end of verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, And when he had finished purging our sins, look at the end. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And when Jesus sat down, he said, The work of salvation is finished. I paid the price. I earned the right to redeem all who will ever come. I will live to intercede for them. And I open the way to the Father. And right now I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to rise from the right hand of the Father and come back to judge the world. Now, that takes us to where we're going to start next week. What happens when he that inherits all things, created all things, holds everything together, what happens when he comes back? Well, Joel tells us there's a cosmic quake, Joel 1.15. Continuing, Joel tells us, that there is an earth-altering destruction from the Almighty. There is an earth-shaking seismic disturbance. We'll see that in Revelation. Zephaniah says the whole earth is obscured in clouds. You know, they've been having problems in Singapore because there have been fires in Indonesia, and the Indonesian fires have been, the smoke has been going up to Singapore, and all the skyscrapers of Singapore are shrouded in smoke. The whole earth is going to be obscured with thick darkness. What does all that mean? Well, it means Jesus Christ is central to everything in life. Of him, everything came into existence. He's the creator. Through him is the only escape from the wrath of God against sin because he's the redeemer. And to him, everything in history is coming to him. Every person who's ever lived is going to have to stand in front of him. And they're going to bow their knee at the judgment. But it's too late. He's going to say, thank you. I am Lord. 
but you had to trust me while you were still alive. That's why the Bible says, while you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, because there's no second chance. When you get to heaven, or when you get to eternity and see it's all real, it's too late. You have to, by faith, say that you're the only one that brings meaning to life. Of him, through him, and to him are all things. And boy, is it going to be interesting when he steps back onto this planet. Let's bow for a word of prayer. And as we bow, I'm going to pray in a moment, but with your head bowed and eyes closed, I want you just to think one thing. Have you ever met the one that I read his resume this morning? Do you know him? Has he purified you of your sins? Are you living for him today? And if not, at the end of every service, the elders of Calvary Bible Church, as well as our gifted and godly Titus II women, rotate through serving at the front. And they're going to be standing here. And if you aren't sure you know Christ or you want to come back and follow him with all of your heart, they'd love to pray with you. And Father, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts. You are Lord. You are Lord. You are risen from the dead. And you are Lord. And we have confessed, and you have saved us. And all you ask is that we live loving you and seeking you. And someday you are coming, and you're going to see whether or not we actually lived for you and whether we invested our life that is of you and that came to us through you, whether we invested it to you. And I pray that you would help us to live our lives unto you, not to ourselves. And I pray for any that don't know you, that you would convict them of their sins and of their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness and their thinking they can make it on their own. And may they be smitten with the need of a Savior. And while your arms are open wide, flee to you today. Thank you for the blessing of letting us see the day of the Lord. And when we see that day next week, we'll be so thankful we don't have to go through it. Bless us as we live for you. Help us to be your servants. In the name of Jesus, I pray, and all God's people said, amen, and God bless you as you go.